0: Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. We're here again on Saturday morning at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets, the economy, and related topics there too like to thank Mr. James Harvey for having sat in for me last week. I've been on the road the last couple weeks uh, meeting with clients and so on, so I appreciate him having sat in. I want to uh, go over, uh, I'll give you the data from the close of the markets and then get into some thoughts about the markets uh, as well as the data about from the Fed and inflation thoughts uh, and as well as some other things to help give you context for the kinds of things that have been going on in the markets this past week. So first things first, uh, the Dow ended the week uh, after having set a new all-time high on Thursday. It was off uh, 149 points at 34,935. S&P also set another new high on Thursday. It was at 43,95. The Nasdaq at 14,672 Russell 2000 closed the weekend, the month at 22.24. Gold was last traded at 18.14 an ounce. Silver at $25.45 an ounce. Crude ended the week at $73.53 a barrel. The 10-year was at 1.23%. And soft white wheat was bid at $9.02 a, a, a bushel. I know I can do it. Uh, all three of the major market indicators did uh, po- uh, post positive results for the month. S&P now, for those of you keeping score, up six months in a row. That means very that it's been up six months in a row and not much more than that. Now th- through yesterday, 89% of the S&P 500 companies that have reported their earnings, well, they've exceeded expectations, many in quite spectacular fashion. Now this past week, we had Amazon, Google, McDonald's, Tesla, Microsoft, Facebook, all these big names, and all came in with great numbers. So what happened when they made their reports? They were all cratered by the traders. Amazon uh, was down uh, 8% on Friday at the open after its revenue grew 27% year over year in the second quarter. Now that is illogical to say the least, How, so what happened? Well, there's a few issues, and none of which were directly related to the companies or their businesses. First and foremost, please understand that traders, whether they're on the exchange floor or anywhere around the globe, have no interest in most fundamentals. They could care less about earnings or products or whatever. They're all about price. And so, by definition, they're not at all uh, long-term oriented, as our investors, which are most folks. Now, traders are the people who do watch and listen to headlines, trying to benefit from short term reactions to those headlines. And contrary to most of the financial media referring to them as investors, as in this from CNBC yesterday, and I'm quoting, investors digested a key inflation indicator that showed better than feared price pressures, unquote. They're not investors, they're definitely not investors. They try to take advantage of the noise a long-term holding for them is probably two minutes ago now further when you see or hear the talking heads using the term investor when talking about earnings or the market uh, over the next say less than one year or the hot sector of the moment it's definitely not you that they're speaking to most financial media is also very short-term focused and by way of partial explanation with regard to those earnings reports Traders operate under the "What have you done for me lately?" meme. You know, basically, that's because of people having been locked up and used more of these companies' goods or services than perhaps uh, they may have in normal circumstances. They made a bunch more money, and the thinking is that those numbers are likely to—excuse me—unlikely to be repeated. So, sell on the news is the rule, and whether or not they're repeated is really not uh, immediately of interest to most investors. So as an investor, if these kinds of stocks fit your needs, these momentum-induced sales can be great times to pick up some shares at prices down a lot from recent highs. You know, that's the old buy-low trick. And what we saw this past week simply reinforces that investors should not get distracted by daily market moves and simply concentrate on staying with your strategy. Let me go back in time. The Wall Street Journal on July 24th, so not uh, that's of 2001. So about this time of year, uh, Amazon was reporting earnings. Uh, They had lost money for 17 quarters in a row. Investors, as you might suggest, were running out of patience. The stock was down 7.5% after hours the day of the disappointing earnings report in July of 2001. Now from that day through this week, Amazon has gained about 29,000%. That works out to be a 32% annualized total return. The S&P over that period has up 8.8% annualized, and that includes dividends. My point with that is simply this: the news of the day really has nothing to do with what your company is going to do long term. So, if you're an investor, again, please, uh, you know, you can read the news, obviously, pay attention, but don't make your investment decisions based on it. Okay? Uh, let's see. So, um, you know, stocks whose earnings and prices have recently been rising do tend to keep winning, while those that have lately been losers often keep losing. Uh, it, it, the stock market, putting it mildly, is a very much a complex dynamic system, meaning it's always changing. Investing is so competitive that history can rarely repeat for very long. If any past pattern uh, reliably uh, recurred, I can guarantee you that so many people would be pouncing on it that it would soon stop working. Leo Grohowski, he's a chief investment officer at BNY uh, Mellon Wealth Management, had this to say, and I certainly concur. He said, and I'm quoting, uh, markets don't go up in straight lines. There are periodic pullbacks, and they are healthy because they remove the frothiness associated with the market and excessive optimism, unquote. Now, what we're addressing specifically is whether or not stocks have been in or are in what will be a correction. Correction by definition down 10%, down 50%, something like that from the most recent high. So I like to use math based on actual data, you know, uh, as I, <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, I call it the Just the Facts Jack uh, School of Economics. Thank you John Candy. Now. The median Nasdaq stock is down 18% from its highs. So if you're waiting for a correction in those stocks, what's the past five months? The average drawdown in the S&P 500 stocks is 8.2%, for mid caps 13%, 18% for small caps, and 17% for all the stocks in the New York Stock Exchange composite. So what part of that isn't representative of correction? It seems, see, this is a market of stocks, not a stock market right now. It seems to me that most stocks are struggling to make much progress. Some are going up, most aren't. We're getting, uh, not getting more countries making new highs. We're seeing more countries making new lows. Now we're talking about their stock markets. Uh, we're not seeing industry groups breaking out, but actually more of them are breaking down. Some stocks are going up, most are not. We're not waiting for a correction to start. <laughs> We're kind of waiting for one to end. You know, there's this peak everything theory, the belief that economic activity and earnings growth would peak in the second quarter. That's pretty much been the dominant market driver for months now. However, indications of economic activity in our second half just concluded remain very strong. And analysts again appear to be underestimating the recovery including 2022 there is just a bunch of money out there and you know it, it's bound to find some of it into the to the marketplace the growth estimates for the second half are rising daily the 2020 new two numbers are likely going to go up as well so i think the estimates are still too low the magnitude of the recovery is so great that some strategists are already saying the analysts will be wrong again. They know it's kind of their job, I mean to be wrong. Now because the economy was in lockdown a year ago and is booming now, the year-over-year growth in earnings is so great, again, the stock prices haven't fully caught up. The S&P was trading about 27 times its earnings uh, just a few weeks ago. Refinitiv's math and they wouldn't lie, says it's now below 25 times. Not necessarily cheap, but it's not exactly running away either. Uh, Savita Sabramian, who is head of U.S. equity and quant strategy at Bank America said, we think 2022 estimates might be too low. Why? Readings from the leading indicators in support of policy is why. So we're halfway through second quarter earnings. The result not only continue to beat forecast by a wide margin, but estimates for this upcoming third and fourth quarter, and again into 2022, are rising and rising again. I want to hit on a few of the economic reports that came out this week, uh, kind of reinforcing how the uh, overall economy is continuing to do pretty good. Uh, Let's first talk to the GDP. Uh, That's gross domestic product, and how you come up with that number is you add consumer spending plus business investment, plus government spending and net exports. So that's how it all comes to pass. Now in the most recent uh, quarter, we had the first of three uh, reports that we'll get about that number. Uh, it showed uh, the economy going six and a half percent. Now that's the fastest since 1981 and we are now, as a result of that growth, back to where we were before the bug showed up. In other words, in 2019. So it's as if all of that has been, if only it were true, erased. So we've got uh, GDP price, Sorry, GDP prices are up at a 2.7% rate annualized rate since late 2019, and that includes the early 2020 deflation. So that shows that the monetary policy is already loose and it's probably loose enough to exceed the Fed's long run 2% inflation target. But please also keep in mind that GDP data, among other kinds of economic reports are backward looking. In other words, it's history. Uh, There's nothing that we can do to change it and there's really not anything uh, that you can base future activity on other than say, hmm, that's interesting. So again, normally if the economy grew at six and a half percent we'd be doing uh, handstands in the street, but Given the lockdown and the market rebound, as well as the finit fiscal stimulus coming from all over the place uh, and very loose monetary policy, the report that real GDP grew at that 65 rate was considered a quote-unquote disappointment because the tea leaf readers had expected 8.4%. Now that's a whole nother conversation, but that's what they were expecting. Now the good news is consumer spending grew at 11.8% annual rate in the second quarter. That's the second best performance for that measure since 1952. So business investment in equipment and intellectual property were up at a 13% rate and a 10.7% rate respectively. However, inventories were a big drag on growth as businesses, which have been hampered by the well-known supply chain disruptions caused by the lockdown and a lack of people willing to work, well, it had to dip even deeper into stockpiles to meet consumer demands. So the flip of that is, is that well, with inventories at their lowest level on record, production has a lot of catching up to do. And even if the consumer demand slows, the biggest inventory restocking on record should cause production growth to overshoot. That's from Anita Markowska. She's chief economist at Jeffries, and I would agree with Ms. Markowska. Now, the disappointing, and I use that term in quotes, uh, GDP number was due to a drop in inventory. So nothing to be concerned about. This from Craig Ariam. He's a senior market analyst at Oanda, which is a Canadian investment company. He says businesses are investing heavily in equipment, software, and research and development, which could lift productivity. Initial and continuing claims came in slightly higher than expected, so that certainly justifies, at least to Craig, a more patient approach from the Fed. Now, economists do expect growth to remain strong, fueled by job (laughs) gain, job gains, Pent-up savings and continued fiscal support. There's a lot of money out there—a monetary tsunami, if you will. Still, many say growth likely peaked in the second quarter and will cool as the initial boost from reopenings and fiscal stimulus fades. Now, if you think about that, it only makes sense. It's at This, these earnings would be hard acts to follow because they don't have the big push behind them that was there uh, from well over the past year. So. Uh, The fact that earnings dropped somewhat into quarter three or four, uh, no reason to bail out of the companies, it's just they were reacting to what the market brought them. So that's not a bad thing. The Fed also had an open market committee uh, meeting this week and had a press conference thereafter. Those are the folks that actually, of the Federal Reserve Board, make the policy about interest rates and stuff. So uh, they did conclude their meeting Wednesday. They kept interest rates in a target range near zero. That was pretty much anticipated. The committee said the economy continues to, quote, strengthen, unquote, despite concerns over, by some, over the latest virus news. So is the virus a concern that has the Fed holding back? Not according to Mr. Powell, who is chair of the uh, Fed. And while the Fed will certainly watch the data for saying signs of disruption, he said, subsequent waves of reported cases have had more muted impacts on economic growth. That's because uh, it's a known item, it's not an unknown as it was when it showed up a year ago. Uh, And he also said the Fed is nowhere near considering a rate hike. And I'm quoting him again, he says, our approach here has been to be as transparent as we can. We have not reached substantial further progress yet, we see substantial economic improvement needed for the central bank to start dialing back its easy money policies, unquote. And just as an aside, while the Fed made no changes to its stance on monetary policy, it did insert language into that most recent statement saying, and I'm quoting, it will continue to assess the economy's progress in coming meetings, which suggests that they may be well setting themselves up to begin uh, reducing the tapering. And again, no reason to uh, open a vein or anything. That's just probably be to our ultimate good uh, benefit throughout. And just uh, economic news. um, You know, I think all we've experienced since last March has really been a long lesson in the basic economic equation about supply and demand. Because into March last year, growth was growing along steadily with nice ample supplies of most things and being able to meet the global demand for those goods and services. Now, uh, as the GDP data showed, the U.S. economy is now larger than it was before last March, and our growth rate may have peaked, but as I said, also not a big surprise. (coughs) Excuse me. And as has been the case for the past several quarters, analysts have substantially underestimated the extent of the economic recovery. Earnings are coming in 18% above expectations, well above the historic numbers of 3 to 5% which is typically what uh, the companies uh, tend to outperform their expectations about. Here's another good example of uh, a strong economy. Retail sales rose again in June, uh, coming in much higher than the consensus expected drop of 0.3%. We've seen consumer spending up 11.8% from quarter one to quarter two. Overall sales up 18%. Now, I know I'm hitting with a lot of data, but these are big numbers. And and some may say this is only due to an easy comparison because of the lockdown and the uh, uh, great deal of business activity having been shut down. But another way to look at it is that sales are up 18% versus 2020. That was before the bug showed up. Yeah, strong is strong, no matter how you interpret it. Now, in the months ahead, the path of retail sales is going to be a battle. It's going to be between a number of uh, opposing factors. For instance, on the tailwind side, if you will, rising wages, jobs, inflation—those are all good for retail sales. While temporary and the artificial artificial boost from these so-called stimulus checks is waning, along with the end to uh, excessive job benefits, those will be headwinds. And uh, private sector wages and salaries, up 11% in the past year. But more importantly, only stand 4.8% above, uh, excuse me, also stand 4.8% above the pre-virus levels. So this is real growth. This is the real deal. This isn't smoke and mirrors. And that's why we're seeing the uh, strong economy uh, showings that we've been getting. Now, there was a report that came out this last week that I think will surprise a number of folks. In that, uh, you know, talk about debt, and, I mean personal debt, and oh my goodness, it's all over the place, and well, U.S. household liabilities, this as a percentage of household assets, and this is across the country, declined once again in the first quarter as they have been doing since 2008. Now the question might be asked, yes, that does speak powerfully to the household balance sheet, but. What percentage of real people's monthly disposable income is going to debt service? And that's kind of a key. The answer is it's 8.2%. And in the first quarter a year ago, 2020, it was 9.8%. So we're now at a 40-year record low. Folks use some of those monies flowing to them to help pay down the debt. So that's a good thing. So the... American household continues to be much more liquid than it's was, than it been in four decades, as a matter of fact. In a, cons- in a consumer-driven economy like us, I don't think that can be considered as anything but positive. And now a few words on the I-word. Yes, indeed. Inflation. What inflation is, by definition, a general increase in the cost of goods and services? Uh, a more off-the-cuff way of thinking it? Everything costs more every year. You can describe this as a decrease too in the purchasing power of your money uh, because, well, let's just leave it at that because that's a whole other conversation. Uh, inflation also reflects the loose stance of the current monetary policy and the imbalance in supply and demand, which is ongoing. Fed officials uh, have continued to say they expect inflation serves to be transitory. That means it's not sticking around, because it's largely come from industries sensitive to the, the uh, reopening, as well as the supply chain lock, uh, bottlenecks, and and the other issues. Hopefully, will continue to fade. The Fed targets two percent as its desired inflation goal, though, as they've said, the officials are willing to tolerate temporarily higher levels as we're seeing, as the economy tries to get back to full employment. Now, just uh, yesterday, the Commerce Department reported that its personal, its core, personal consumption expenditures price index, yeah, that's one that just rolls right off your tongue, doesn't it? That's why they call it the PCE index. Anyhow, it rose month over month, but it was below the estimate, indicating that inflationary pressures may, in fact, may be starting to back off a little bit. Now let me give you just, uh, there's some different kinds of inflation, and certainly you wouldn't want to be accused of using the wrong term. So first of all, the worst one is long-term inflation. That's where you have an elevated annual increase in prices. In other words, the Consumer Price Index kind of measures that. This is the kind of inflation that will smoosh economic growth. Smoosh being a very important technical term, you might want to poke it up it forces the central banks to raise rates which impacts everything purchased with credit from cars to houses to your lines of credit fearing higher prices of course panic buying there comes can occur which creates then a vicious cycle of rising prices it tends to feed on itself so this is something that the central banks need to be aware of and I can assure you they are now the flip side of that is long-term deflation Uh, That's where prices continue to fall. That's what happened in the depression, and if it gets too rapid Consumers anticipate lower prices hold off purchases, which of course can constrain the economy and like that Gradual deflation well That's not all bad prices can be driven lower in many ways by for example economies of scale Where you're buying using a lot more of the product than what was originally like flat panel TVs for example Digitalization, automation, uh, this is how goods tend to find their way to lower prices and more consumers. And here we go to transitory. That's when prices pop higher for a relatively short period, and then the annualized rate of inflation starts to move back to more normal levels. I think we've seen lumber as a good example of that this year. And then finally, there's what's called price resets. These occur when an entire group of goods or services experience some step-level price change that suddenly is higher and then stays there. The annual rate of change is the same as before, only from higher levels. So the big debate now is between transitory and long-term, and I think uh, you might be focusing more on the resets, because in lots of different areas, prices sometimes stair-step higher over decades. That's not a gradual annualized increase, but a a substantial all-at-once move that then sticks around for a while with lower normal price increases. We need to recognize why the prices are going up. I think that's kind of key. Are they due to temporary supply chain issues, bottlenecks associated with the reopening, or is it something worse? Please understand, there are a lot of moving parts around this inflation. So the proverbial bottom line, at least as it looks right now, inflation will likely remain elevated through the end of next year, that's relatively speaking, but then should moderate back to the Fed's 2% long term target. You know, think of it as like floodwaters receding. We don't expect the current levels of inflation to continue over the long term as they're still being driven by the increases in a small number of categories. Higher volatility, yeah, that's probably likely. As surprises in inflation data could trigger market turbulence. But our team believes the uh, Fed's first interest rate hike still is 12 to 18 months away. So, now I want to get something a little more philosophical, if you will. Pick this up from a gentleman named Nick Murray, and I think Nick usually does hit it out of the park, and uh, let me share it with you. It's called the signal and the noise. The definition, as you'd find it on conceptually.org, says, "The signal is the meaningful information that you're trying to detect. The noise is the random, unwanted variation or fluctuation that interferes with the signal." So, you know, if you do stock investing right, it's like watching paint dry. You know, if you change your investment policy, assuming you have one, you're probably wrong. If you change it urgently, as in response to current events, you're guaranteed to be wrong. And above all, you can do your own research on this. Remember that the stock market's advance is permanent. Its declines are temporary. We use constant, reliable, recurring patterns to guide us toward rock-solid investment policy that never failed. Moreover, we believe these patterns, given enough time, can't fail. That's the signal. Then there are the random jagged interruptions in the form of economic recessions, or even just the dread thereof, corrections slash bear markets, elections, bizarre government policies, Hmm. and geopolitical quote-unquote crises. They all get processed through the clickbait end-of-the-world headlines and the short-term predictions slash commentary from the talking heads. 24-7 news cycle plays with deadly efficiency on human nature's worst instincts. Chief among those, well, that's that people process economic-slash-market phenomenon in a manner called pro Try it with your teeth in, Mike. Pro-cyclicality. Anyhow, with the cycles. <laughs> I guess i got to get my teeth fixed. Um, anyhow, this means that when the investment prices are falling, human nature presumes that the risk is rising and the value declining. When, in fact, all reason, logic, history demonstrate the exact opposite. Any other opportunity to buy quality stuff at lower prices is almost always seen as a good deal. Throughout my career, this has just always confused me to death. For stock, people seemingly have brain blockage. Hence, human nature experiences bear markets and moving closely to the end of the world. Or even at the end of the world. Then, in a bullish situation... That same nature chases fads madly and wholly incorrectly, concluding that as those prices rise, the value is increasing and risk declining. Totally opposite, and that's the noise. So, here some examples of the noise. Since 1960, the market, stock market has had its three worst declines since the 30s beginning when I started in the business, talk about a rocket scientist, where the uh, market dropped 48% from uh, 1973 to 1974. A quarter a century later, it went down 49% over 19 months in 2000 to 2002. And then 10 years came after the mother of all post-war bear markets, 57% over 17 months in 2007 and 9. You may have read about that one. You know, they have... <laughs> As I'm sure you know, uh, set off huge, long lasting waves of selling by most of the investing public. In fact, they were the three greatest buying opportunities since the end of the Second World War. So, why this terrible contraction? Well, because in human nature's fatally, and I've shortened the word pro cyclical thinking, it works better now, the noise is permitted to drown out the signal. Well, if indeed most folks even hear the signal in the first place. The uh, national financial media is fundamentally an exercise in fear-mongering, it's been that way as long as I've been in the business. Just in the last year and a half, it has cried out with one voice, fear the new black plague, fear the bottomless economic depression set off by that plague. Fear a presidential election that may destroy American democracy. Fear the cancer of runaway inflation. And of course, be sure to fear the deadly Delta variant. Deadly in quotes. And whenever the currently rapid pace of economic recovery does slow, those same journalists will say that the economy is probably slipping into recession until and unless it does seize on some other crisis and then the one they are currently focusing on magically disappears. Um, And like the vampire it is, and I'm being, I mean, I have no use for how these folks screw people's uh, attitudes up. You know, like the vampire it is, financial journalism must show, sorry, sorry, so fear or lose clicks, views or whatever. They must always have an apocalypse du jour. Fear plays. Ask the CDC. I don't for a moment minimize the tragedy of the pandemic's hundreds of thousands of deaths when I insist that, and for some, they just can't accept the fact that to the investment policy of a lifetime multi-generational investor, this pandemic is noise. Pearl Harbor, September 11th, Watergate, all just noise. October 19th, 1987 when we had the greatest one-day stock market sale in history. Prices were down 20% that one day. That was a most interesting day, I can assure you that. Well, that was the pure essence of noise. It was, in reality, just the mother of all blips. Of course, this didn't stop the financial media from reporting it as if it were the onset of the Second Great Depression. Well, you get the picture. So, our clients are owners of great companies. Other than obsolescence, competition, simply losing their way, what's the one problem successful companies always have to face, always decade in, decade out, regardless of what's going on out in the other world, inflation in their costs, and how, in addition to innovation, do they deal with those cost pressures? Well, they pass them on to the consumer. You know, McDonald's raises the Big Mac by a nickel, General Mills raises the price by a dime, so on and so on. Thus without having to actually sell more stuff, uh, these companies and hundreds like them will record higher sales, earnings, and dividends. So our clients will benefit from the most effort- boy, oh boy, effortlessly, efficient long-term inflation heads that likely ever was or ever will be available to ordinary people. So keep that in mind when you're talking about, oh, I'm worried about inflation. I've got some numbers here that might make you think, hmm. These stocks are indeed a good inflation hedge. Our clients know that they're owners of successful businesses through the companies that they own. Companies that they patronize, products they use every day. Great companies stay that way by working through their problems, just like humans do. So, you know, we have to, we as advisors, have to battle for our clients against this abstraction whose terrifying name is the stock market. Oh, I'm afraid of the stock market. Really? Why is that? No, there's really not much more people say once you ask them that question. I personally never found a better antidote to these bad things than using specific examples of individual great companies to illustrate their strength and resilience. You know, there is a chink in the armor of this signal. In other words, these facts and. Uh, it's that 60-year perspective it opens this to this kind of question hey i mean i'll be around in 60 years okay but perhaps your children and grandchildren will you know of course if you're not interested in the legacy thing <laughs> if you just want that last check to bounce higher than whatever well okay but you see what i'm saying there is a reason for considering the longer term advantages of this in an important sense it misses a critical point you know that because it goes up so much more than it retreats, and for so much longer periods, the market is always in the process of healing itself. Now here's some data that, to keep in mind uh, as far as, oh, I'm afraid of the stock market. In any, This is from uh, inclu, including reinvested dividends. This is the S&P 500 from 1926, that's when we first had good data, through the uh, end of last year. So in any one year period in the, period of time, the market was 75.5% positive. That was up 75.5% of the time. In any three-year period, 84% of the time. Five-year period, 88% of the time. Ten-year period, 94% of the time, 15 years, 99.7, and no negative 20-year periods. So, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Now, again, I (laughs) Let me. uh, I got biased, like you can't believe, because when I started in 1973, the uh, markets were somewhat lower. The Dow uh, was 850. The um, S&P 707. Yeah, you can look. That's uh, we're higher than that now. So this suggests that even if you're only going to be in stocks for as little as a decade, you know the odds of experiencing negative return are pretty small. So even longer range, the way to look at it is to go all the way back to the onset of the first World War II bear market, where we saw 19.3 on the S&P at the end of May 1946. In the following 75 years through this last month, the S&P is up 225 times in value. The dividend of the S&P in May forty six was running at an annual rate of about 68 cents. This year to be about $60 that's up about 88 times. The consumer price index, which is inflation, up 15 times. That's what I'm saying about an inflation hedge. That's pretty much higher. All of those numbers are very much higher than the consumer price index. Well, when you hear this, let's get out of the market till things settle down, this time it's different Is the end game. This is where all financial planning, and even rational discussion stop. It assumes the conclusion that the future is already becoming radically different from the totality of history, and in what are sure to be bad ways. Here we're talking noise. It is the statement by an investor where they say, Thank you for telling me about the signal. I still want to believe in the noise. Well, you can't make investment policy out of chaos. I'm not so much trying to convince people as comfort them. It isn't in our power to offer investors certainty, but we can and must offer overwhelming historical probability, and that I can do till the cows or whomever it is you want come home. Now a few uh, final words here, let's see yeah, well, we got a few minutes. Um, you know, the outlook for the markets still look pretty good. You know, Stocks deal with widely publicized issues taking in all available information almost instantly and then move on. They look ahead to what the next 3 to 30 months holds for company profits. Growth rates, trading P.E. ratios are likely to remain distorted by the worst of the year's pandemic-related results uh, into next year. Now, there's a uh, Money market accounts, which some say uh, is dry powder as a reserve for some stock purchases. Well, $4.5 trillion lying around in money market accounts. A more obscure balance, that's called the Federal Reserve's count of money on deposit with commercial banks. It's up 33% from 2019. It's now $17 trillion. I think we can agree that's a lot of cash just there. And while there is almost as much cash on the sidelines as in March 2020... The key is, though, it has a lot less buying power because as a percentage of market cap, that's been cut in half. The market value of the S&P has grown from $39 trillion, It's $239 trillion from $19 trillion. So uh, the good news is it's higher. The bad news is you can't buy quite as much as you could then. Bingo. You know, there's an old adage in our business. When's the best time to invest? When you have the money. I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next Saturday at 9 Pacific. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products or subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results and there is always risk associated with investment.